Minnesota is home to two of the most livable cities, the most beautiful natural scenery, and one of the most industrious, creative cultures in the world. In recent years, a thriving democracy of checks, balances, and an adversarial media have been replaced by political rivalries and corrupt officials more focused on delivering for donors and interest groups than honoring the public trust. Increasingly, local media seems in lockstep with this enterprise. In the spring of 2020, this system broke down and sent shockwaves throughout the country. MinQuery is not about politics. It is about the breakdown in transparency and accountability to the public and what can be done to bring sustainable balance back to Minnesota government. Hello and welcome to another edition of MinQuery, uh, where we uh, bust myths, where we confront uh, supposed realities, uh, where we have really important guests uh, whose voice needs to be heard more than it is being heard. And we're doing all of those things today by having uh, with us Michael Friedman. Michael Friedman comes to us as the uh, former chair of the Civilian Review Authority in Minneapolis, uh, more recently, longtime executive director of the Legal Rights Center. Uh, he has published uh, a great deal on issues of policing, on issues of government transparency, uh, and specifically and more recently on issues of governance in Minneapolis uh, and how to fix the broken city charter. Michael, it's so great to have you with us. That's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Paul and Val. Val, before we started, I, I, I asked you if we could play the Ghostbusters theme music and, and call this the myth-busting episode. And then you pointed out that that would be copyrighted. But for our <laughs> listeners, that's really what we want to do today. We want to take a deep dive into a number of issues uh, and uh, start with the issue that's very much on people's minds. And then, and then I want to talk to you, Michael, about a lot of the good things you've done in your career as well. But I would like to jump right into uh, the charter issues that are, are coming up on the ballot. And Michael, you and I have had a chance to talk a little bit about this. And I think we share some of these thoughts that uh, unfortunately the supporters uh, uh, and those not supporting both of these amendments uh, don't seem to really be focusing on the substance of the amendments. Um, I, and that's the case, although I would also, uh, we may get more into this, some of that is intentional and some of that may be out of ignorance. And so there's, there's different ways of sorting through why that's happening. There's a dynamic here that, that, I, I think leads to um, misconceptions on on both sides, and and uh, uh, I think I surprised a lot of the people that I uh, tend to work with. Uh, I'm actually one of the volunteer workers for Charter for Change, and uh, last week I came out in favor of the second Charter Amendment. It was striking to me that the primary objections that I heard from people had, frankly, very little to do with the actual language of the amendment. Uh, first and foremost, the people that were pushing back on my support for the second, the public safety amendment were saying, 
well, we just don't trust the Minneapolis City Council. Right. And second, I was hearing we just can't vote for defunding the police, even if even if it doesn't really do that. People will think it does that. That will harm us politically, locally. It'll harm the image of the city. And who knows, maybe the United States Congress will flip to the Republicans because they would appoint to Minneapolis. But I heard those are the arguments I heard, Michael. It's very interesting to me because very few of them really had to do with the language of what the amendment actually does. Right. And I, I think the implications of the first one are really um, kind of disturbing if they're taken to the full understanding. Um, a charter is like a constitution. I mean, it's basically the document that defines the basic structures within whatever the, the democratic unit is. And, and in, obviously in Minneapolis, that's the city. But if the emphasis of the rationale is I don't trust the charter, then basically those people who are putting forward that are saying, because we don't trust democracy of who is being elected, then we therefore need to remove the democracy in, in the Constitution itself. It would be the equivalent of saying, well, I'm worried the Senate's going to change hands, so let's change the Constitution of the United States so that they can't vote on something in the future. Um, all of the arguments about uh, what about policing or what kind of public safety workforce we're going to have, all of those things are yet to be decided the point uh, and to say, well, it's kind of like the opponents of change say, well, let's take two cracks at this. First, let's deny the opportunity for the city council to uh, even be able to legislate on that, which is what would be accomplished in the amendment. And if we lose that, then we'll later just argue all the legislation. But the best thing is not to even argue the legislation. Let's just prevent it from being debated. And it seems this is a trend, I think, Val. We see this at the national level, too. We talk a lot about the rule of law, but depending on who's president, we want to see a strong executive if it's our guy or our, or our lady. Hopefully sometime. people have a hard time understanding the implications of their decisions when it comes to the other side. Uh, right. They can't, they don't, they don't understand how that works or it seems that they don't understand. And I wasn't around in Minneapolis, but I was alive when we had Charlie Stenvig as mayor. So you could easily, you know, uh, see where a strong mayor system uh, with someone like a Charlie Stenvig in charge would be a dangerous scenario. Right. Well, and, and then to go to the other part of what you said, the fear of defunding. Um, if the opposition in the general populace to defunding is as substantial as it probably appears it is uh, at this point of time, then whatever nine council members said in the heat of the moment on one afternoon is really irrelevant to what will happen. Um, I, and I think uh, Keith Ellison made that point pretty well in, in his uh, guest editorial in the Star Tribune, which is the issues of what kind of 
public safety and what kind of police force and how many, all those things are a normal subject of government and may change from year to year, depending on circumstances in, in a scenario. And to lead with rhetoric that if you vote to change the structure of government, to allow the council more room to legislate and to allow a shift in, in how the resources are um, organized through a public safety department that you therefore have removed and eliminated your police department for the rest of Minneapolis history, you know, it's completely, um, it, it's complete fear tactics. And I do wonder as you kind of, you know, you indicated a connection between the national picture and 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 sort of a tendency in the in the society as a whole. I have to feel that the many people from Minneapolis who may not have a strong opinion about it are getting that same flyer in the in their mail six days a week, like I am, which repeat the same things in very hysterical, hyperbolic ways, reminds them of things about political campaigns that they generally find they're oppositional to. And uh, I, I, it's hard to understand what it is that's just driving and driving this kind of campaign, except perhaps that there's kind of a fear of the city council in general, not just on issues of policing, and they're maybe trying to tarnish the city council, like you said, Paul, because there's... Um, certain centers of power just feel that they can have a better um, a better audience with the mayor and uh, they're afraid of what democratic government could bring to their influence. And I think for the same reason, you're seeing a generational divide in support of number two. I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about the methods of the Star Tribune poll to necessarily base it all on that, but just from my anecdotal experience in both white and non-white communities, the opposition to number two tends to center much older. And so the city council uh, from the last election probably reflected some form of generational change in city politics. And it's making an older generation nervous about that change. And they not just want to get rid of the you know the particulars in in the amendment they want to they want to they want to further a perception of the city council being illegitimate and i think that is a dangerous thing for the city going forward well i feel like i feel like a lot of because of what happened last year and the kind of national attention that minneapolis has been getting yeah. i feel like that's just amplifying everything um, and there's been a, a ton of money thrown into both sides of these arguments uh, that's funding so much of this rhetoric that we're seeing that I think people are just getting overwhelmed with, with the politicization of everything. I think that's a good point. I, for whatever reasons, um, and, and it's hard for me to have the right expertise to analyze it, but for whatever reasons, the vote on the charter is being seen as a very deep symbolic vote. And so the money pouring in to defend a side on the symbolism 
has kind of taken hold. And I think that's where the outside money uh, has come in, probably on both sides, but I've seen far more being spent on the opposition side at, the, at, at this point. Um, and, and I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, as someone who spent years on, on um, you know, with access to private data of police complaints and having a fairly good knowledge base of what lends itself to complaints against Minneapolis police and what problems are, I can tell you that passing this amendment does not solve the problem of policing in Minneapolis, um, but it does enable a more firmer line of how the accountability is drawn and whether the city council has better capacity to, um, to impose um, directives and also bring light to issues. And so one of the reasons I changed my view and in the interest of full disclosure, uh, I, I, I actually don't mind confessing this in public, but I, I told Elliot Payne, who's a candidate here in the uh, first ward, I hope Elliot, you're watching at some point and I, I owe you something for this, but I, I had a conversation with him three, four months ago. I said, if you support this second amendment, I can't support your campaign. I told him that. Yeah. Uh, why did I do that? Because, you know, it, it, uh, politics are very tribal and politics are very symbolic and we're all susceptible to that. And uh, but the more and more I looked at the merits of this and frankly, Michael, the more and more I spoke with people who I trust and had a chance to see some of what's been going on at City Hall, uh, there has been in my view, a real use of this complete power language in the charter to prevent the city council from any real oversight. Uh, one of the, you know, a number of issues. They, they, they decided to defund the mountain control patrol and the mayor said, doesn't matter, I'm ignoring it. Um, there's issues having to do with non-lethal force where they've tried to pass policies and the mayor and the city attorney said, doesn't matter what you say. Uh, and so I reevaluated my position, which I think we all have to be willing to do. And, and so that's, that's how I ended up being a supporter of the second amendment, uh, to the charter, by the way, and I'm not, I mean, we have to change that second amendment because, you know, it's got kind of a double meaning, but, but Michael, you also came out and, and uh, I don't know if it, if, surprise folks or not, but uh, you uh, just recently submitted, by the time people see this, it'll be published in the Reformer, uh, and you came out as a supporter to the first uh, Charter for Change Amendment uh, uh, to make clear the executive authority of the city. So I'm, I'm interested in your thought process reaching that decision. Right. No, I, I think that's true. And, and uh, I did not have a conversation with the city council candidate. So, uh, so my experience was different. Um, but uh, my instinct from the beginning was to oppose city charter amendment number one, the one that's commonly labeled about government structure or how the, you know, if we have a weak mayor or a strong mayor. Um, 
because I'm uh, I'm strongly in favor of the deeper you can dive into democracy, the better. So if people are using terms about a strong mayor or a strong council, I would vote for the strong council any day of the week because I have had plenty of conversations with council members. People call them up and say, I had this incident with police or I had this other problem and the council member wants to um, wants to, you know, is the is really more of a first responder within government than a mayor is. I don't think most people can just call the mayor's office and get an aide or an audience. So, so just on that, I was thinking, well, you know, what's wrong with the way it is? And then the second thing uh, is just as you were talking about, Paul, the, the people who are lining up opposed to two, which I strongly support and find necessary, tended to be strongly in support of number one. And so it's like, well, if you're not gonna, <laughs> you know, I, you know, my friend, uh, I, I can't do that expression on, on uh, off the top of my head, but if they're, if they're uh, for it, I'm probably going to be against it. It's that tribal thing that you're, you know, that you were referring to. Um, and, and I, and I guess also just being a little annoyed with the charter commission, I feel in 2020, it seemed, I don't know all the nuances, but it seemed they played with the timeline where it didn't get on the ballot, where maybe it should have gotten on the ballot in 2020 and they kind of sat on it and then it was too late. So I just kind of was annoyed at the charter commission, which is a very undemocratic institution. Fundamentally, it's appointed by judges and, um, I mean, there probably are appointments within which are good faith attempts to broaden the representational aspects, but it's, there's certainly, and when I talked about a generational split, it certainly reflects an older generation, if, if nothing else. Um, but my, um, my interest in looking again at number one, and frankly, it's in the first place came from reading your own editorial, Paul, which sort of linked issues of accountability with the two of with the two of them both passing. Um, and, and, and as I said, I mean, I, I was sort of opposed to it more from a tribal sense, but I didn't I didn't, never felt like something I had to oppose publicly. There wasn't anything that concrete that was bothersome about it. Uh, so what I did, which is the what I should have done all along and is responsible as someone who's, I'm not personally a lawyer, but I'm very familiar with legal language and have used it in a lot of my professional career. I went and looked at what's called the strike through, which mm -hmm. is when there's a an amendment to law, you actually see underlined all the new words that are added and with a cross through all the words that are removed. So I looked at the, the strike throughs for charter amendment number one, and it really doesn't do a lot. One thinks from all the rhetoric that it's just making this huge change in Minneapolis that so much is at stake. It's really correcting in my view, and, and I know Paul, you're an advocate, so you, you can certainly embellish and you know more, but to me, the Fun, there are two things that it fundamentally does, and that's pretty much it. One is it gets rid of what's called the executive committee. The executive committee is an appointing body along with, uh, you know, so it's not just the mayor who appoints department heads. It's an executive committee 
and there were a few city council members on that. So frankly, uh, you know, it's interesting because some of the opponents to number two have said, well, I only vote for the mayor. I don't vote for this city council member who's standing on a hill saying defund. However, the city council, when they vote as a whole body, you're represented. I mean, the city council votes and maybe you're rep you didn't vote for the person who's in the majority and your person's in the minority, but you're fully represented. The executive committee is something that legitimately is not automatically representative because which city council members are on the executive committee is not something chosen by vote of the people. So if you're looking at it from a pure democratic standpoint, there's something you could say, oh, well, the council is sharing the power, but really not quite. It could create kind of a little power base within the council that creates inequity within the council. And I, I, don't, I just think that um, given the history of Minneapolis and redlining and you know where wards are, there's just a lot of sense of like, are all council members equally powerful and anything that might imply they are not should be removed. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a good change. Uh, the other thing that I saw it does is it removes the ability, it removes reappointments of department heads. And to me, that's not a very hard question because when the, um, I mean, the obvious one that most of us know is the president. The president chooses a cabinet member. You make, they make a selection. This person's going to be my secretary of state. Congress has one shot to say yay or nay. They vote, they're either in or they're not in, and the president has to come with someone else. What happens in the city at the status quo is that every department head is either a two-year or a three-year term, and at the end of the term, they do it all over again. So all this 14 bosses something is really, it's all nonsense from the standpoint of, I mean, people reading the ads might think, oh, well, uh, Lisa Bender just can call anybody anytime and say, do this, and they have to do it. That's not true. There's no direct authority of a council member to any department head. But if there's an implied threat that if they're, you know, in two years, if you don't like really act very favorably to city council meddling or requests or however you want to frame it, you might be out of a job because you're constantly being reappointed, then that, that could be a problem. And so I think, and then it also allows a mayor to say, well, I, you know, my department heads were kind of listening to the council members who they were worried about for their reappointment, and they, they weren't really fully subject to what I wanted them to do. So it blunts mayoral accountability a little bit as well. So uh, anyway, I know I'm kind of running on with this answer, but these are these are the reasons that I think if 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 the proponents explained it that way, compared it to the president, and interestingly, they could compare it right now to what's going on in the state of Minnesota. Yeah. Right now, the governor should be operating like the president, except the Republican Senate won't take a vote on the department heads. Yeah. So that what people are afraid that the city council does by voting in two years, the Republican Senate legislators can do any, any day of the week. And that's a huge problem in terms of the executive authority of the governor. 
And I don't see millions of dollars of money coming in complaining about our weak governor system. You know, it's all this weak mayor because of this. Um, you know, a good mayor probably could get around it most of the time and insist on loyalty from department heads and get council members to knock it off. But I do think that if we want Minneapolis not to be an outlier in how executives and legislatives are supposed to operate, we have to trust a mayor to pick department heads and create the, the hierarchy of accountability so that we know how it is. But meanwhile, the legislature should have the right for any department, police or otherwise, to set legislation that sets policies, guidelines, goals, big parameter things that the executive departments carry forward. So for those reasons, I am now aligned with both of them being good for city government. So we both uh, fought off those tribal instincts uh, uh, successfully, and hopefully we can encourage others to do that. Yeah. To me, it's about accountability and transparency. Okay. And and uh, a gentleman by the name of Keith Ford, who I worked with for a short period of time at City Hall, uh, who himself was a council member and then was uh, with the Community Development Agency, he at a, at a recent event I was at, he said, I challenge any of you to figure out how you can hold any elected official in Minneapolis accountable for anything. And it's, it's, it's what you just said, Michael. And we're hearing that, of course, with the city council and maybe, frankly, with, with some uh, merit. They're saying you can't hold us accountable for the police department because the mayor has complete power. And we've seen the mayor exercise that complete power. Now, I might quibble with that. I think they can do some things, but, but they, they have a leg to stand on when they argue that. The flip side of it is the mayor's, to your point, says, I've got to get these folks reappointed every two, three years. You know, they're, 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 I'm not really their boss because most people define Val, I think, their boss as who can fire them. Right. That's right. the ultimate question. And the reality in Minneapolis is that every two years, three years for the police, but uh, three council members, on the executive committee or seven council members on the council can fire uh, any department head. And so I'm kind of looking at this as, as, as I've thought through the clearest way to talk about this is we won't have any transparency unless we have a, a, a city council that has clear legislative and oversight authority. And right. we won't have any authority. I mean, sorry, we won't have any accountability without a clear executive that we can also hold accountable. Right. No, I, I think those are those are good points. And um, I'm going to add one that that you've um, mentioned in, in correspondence with me that I think is is also um, a, a good corollary is council is normally where public hearings take place. So if you bring things into the council and the legislative function, and I'm, I'm now more focused on the police side of things, um, there, there is the ability to bring things into public debate, you know, and ultimately to a vote and mayors still have vetoes and can create the requirement of a supermajority for some things to go forward. But I have a very, very solid example of where accountability for policing kind of gets buried. 
And um, this goes back probably, uh, I don't know if, I don't really don't remember, you know, if, if you were involved in any of the committees on this, Paul, but it was probably right near the end of your, your last term. And um, I happen to be in city council chambers one day as the chair of the civilian review authority, when there was a consent item on the agenda to buy, you know, however many hundred taser stun guns. Tasers were relatively new at the time. Um, I think they maybe had 30 or 40 being used in the department, mostly by what they call CIT officers, which are officers who sort of specialize in mental health response. Um, and I, since I was in there and it's a public meeting, I just spoke up and said, hey, maybe could, you know, uh, the civilian review has seen some cases where the tasers have been used a bit problematically. It's private data. I'm not prepared to go into detail at this point of time, but could you hold off on this vote until we could have further discussion about it? Um, uh, assistant at the time he was the assistant chief Dolan was in the room advocating for it. And he kind of complained a little bit, but the council went along with what I suggested. Uh, the council then, um, uh, I, don't, I don't remember if you voted it or if it just sort of happened otherwise, but Civilian Review organized a task force that operated over a few months to study tasers. Um, one of our members is a criminal justice professor at Metro State who teaches police. She was very qualified to do some of the research aspects of the work. One of them is someone who uh, was about to go to law school and, and did a lot of the work in consulting with ACLUs in other places and find out experiences where the stun guns were in better use. I kind of did the analysis of cases that had come before civilian review. Um, and, and one of the things that had happened is uh, there were a couple cases where uh, an officer had used the taser as what I'll call a compliance weapon, like someone didn't stand up. And that's fundamentally, that's a form of torture. Getting the electrical current for not standing up is not an appropriate way of dealing with that situation. Um, civilian review did not find cause for discipline to that officer because there was no policy or training that ever told that officer they couldn't do that. And so it was not fair to penalize an individual employee for doing that. So all this information and the information from the ACLUs and best practices, I think we talked to the International Association of Chiefs of Police, all this got rolled in to a draft policy, which I believe, I think even Chief Dolan may have, or Assistant Chief Dolan may have been part of that discussion or somebody on the police command was. And we came up with a model policy, which basically said tasers will be on the use of force continuum at not at a specific point where, oh, if this happens, you can use it, but that it has to be individually justifiable that there was no other and better option. And uh, it was kind of celebrated like a great example of working together. The council then authorized the purchase of a couple of a hundred other tasers um, and all was well. Uh, a year later, 
when I was at the Legal Rights Center, one of our lawyers got a case that involved an officer's use of taser. Legal Rights Center does criminal defense, so it was in the course of an arrest in some, some way, and somehow it got to my attention. And I'm looking at it and I'm saying, well, that's not the policy <laughs> that we just know of. And, um, you know, it got looked up because police policies are public information and certainly accessible to defense lawyers. Uh, half a year later, the policy was changed. The city attorney and the police chief and the mayor changed the policy, didn't tell anyone because they have complete control. But whatever policy the city council thought it was passing that was from an informed public process that was looking for the best interest of um, of the city, not just the best interest of the city of, you know, just the safety of individuals, but, you know, the long range view of community relations, police perceptions, all those things was changed because there was no oversight. And that's one of the critical things that I think is, you know, is a great connection between what your, you know, information group and the purpose of this podcast is about public transparency and access to information. And just like you said, when there's no transparency, the accountability can so much more easily go out the window because, you know, it's no one's watching and the mayor who has complete and exclusive control can do this. And, and finally, I know I've, I've been running off again, but one thing that shouldn't be ignored is the role of a city attorney's office in some of this. A city attorney should not be a policy-driven office. It should be purely looking at advising their best understanding of what the law says. My experience in diff not just this taser area, but other things that have come up in over many years, is the city attorney defines the city's interest as what will help them win a prosecution or win a civil defense police, um, you know, a civil liability police case. So, Mike, I'm going to jump in there. You're you're so right, and and Val's heard me talk about the city attorney. There's so many examples. The most flagrant example, of course, being when transparently former city attorney Susan Siegel provided former council member Colvin Roy with a letter saying that the Minneapolis city charter allowed the expenditure of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of city sales tax without a referendum. An opinion that was later mocked by a judge who later saw it. And magically, a few days later, Councilor Colvin Roy, who committed not to ever vote to violate the charter, became the seventh vote on the stadium. Uh, but there's another example that, that I think has raised a few eyebrows, and that is in 2018, uh, former city attorney Siegel prepared an opinion that was actually a very strong vindication of the city council's rights uh, to legislate and oversight as it relates to the police department. In that opinion, she said that that authority is equal to their authority over any other department. Right. Then we have another opinion only uh, three, four months ago uh, from the new city attorney, uh, James Roeder, uh, which said that in fact, uh, the powers of the mayor are, are greater 
than over other departments, stating that the city council had no authority to pass a policy on non-lethal weapons. Now, the suspicion, I, I, don't, I think Councilmember Gordon, uh, I don't know if I'm violating any competences, but I think there's suspicion that the 2018 opinion was a direct attempt to torpedo Councilmember Gordon's attempt to change the charter in 2018. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I do know that that the politicization of the city attorney's office to support the views of either the mayor or a majority of council members has at times been very troubling to me. Right. I, I agree that I think the 2018 opinion is the outlier. I mean, what from time to time, I would hear rhetoric. I, I didn't personally um, interact with Susan Siegel or Jay Hepburn before, but certainly city attorneys who reported to them in the civil division I, I did have some interactions with. And, um, you know, the rhetoric is sure the city council can do things. Because, um, it, but it seemed more like a public relations thing. And, and the taser example was one example where ultimately, you know, the city council could pass something because the mayor at that moment of time was kind of pretending to go along with it. And then a few months later, I, I mean, not that I know whether Mayor Ryback was even involved in the policy shift or if it just slipped under his radar between the city attorney and the police department, but it just, um, it just shifted. But I, I don't think uh, there's any example of the city council, I mean, you know, for similar reasons, the city council is authority to create a civilian review authority or an OPCR or some kind of police oversight body. Um, but when I was on the civilian review authority and we found cause for discipline, sometimes really egregious cases, sometimes people who later got fired for incidents that were public where they should have seen this as an early warning, um, the police chief would just quote unquote, reinvestigated from scratch and then not discipline. So the city council had basically tried to create a good separation of function. The civil rights department with a board reporting to a board as adjudicators would fact find whether police misconduct existed. And once that fact finding was there, the police chief would discipline based on that fact finding. Ultimately, whatever the city council wanted was irrelevant because since the mayor had exclusive control over policing and the police exclusive control over police discipline also to the city attorney's view meant exclusive control over whether you're even finding facts about whether misconduct occurred. So Michael, I had a conversation with uh, someone a couple of days ago and when I told them that, do you know the mayor has complete control over the police department? They, they just raised their eyebrows. No one should have complete control. No one person should have complete control. It, 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 it just strikes me that the proponents for that second amendment uh, to the charter really should be focusing on, on that because they're you wrote a piece that I want to bring up that resonated with me that there's never any upside for a mayor or a police chief to have any incident of police violence become public. Right. Never. It's always against their political interests. If they're the mayor, 
it's always against their interest as a police chief, at least if they're just looking at from one day at a time how to how to maintain you know their position and and the prestige of their department. Um, so if we if we say the mayor has complete control over the police department, what what system is out there that's trying to change any of these incentives? The incentives will remain the same no matter what who gets elected to any other position. The incentives are going to remain the same to bury this information as much as we possibly can. And and how do we know there's not another Derek Chauvin out there? How do we know how many cases of of, of egregious behavior that we're not even finding out about? Right. And I, I just I, I I agree completely, but I also want to frame it a little bit more carefully because Passing the Charter Amendment right. two will not solve the the state's public data law, which creates an incentive to cover up, because um, because of the political um, problem of that. However, um, it does create a better basis for even if individual situations might have gag orders through law imposed on them where you can't get into details, it at least gets the depth of the problem to become more of a, of a public issue through public hearings. There's ways that you can talk about problems in the aggregator with, you know, without identifying individual scenarios and officers or, or, or the failure um, or the failure to discipline. And, and also I should, I should maybe even take it a little step further. The, my understanding of the data practices laws, it does allow people in government who have a need to know to get access to private information. Now, if the council legit, you know, through the passage of, of amendment number two becomes, sort of reacquires the ability to legislate policy guidance that can affect or or discipline response policies all sorts of things that could um impact you know certainly the city's bottom line in lawsuits and obviously the public health in terms of incidents if the city council reacquires that suddenly they're also arguably in the need to know about private data and they will hear what those incidents are but let me stop you there because that's an important point. Is it your understanding now that the the mayor has access to certain private disciplinary records that the city council would not have access to? Absolutely. I mean, when I was um, when I was on the civilian review authority, I signed whatever things I needed to sign, saying I could get sued for releasing private data, and got trained on the law. Um, and the law is not that complicated, uh, just to spell it out for those who don't know. If, if, if a certain level of discipline, I'm sorry, if, if, if a certain, if discipline has been imposed, it's not if, if misconduct happened. If right. discipline is imposed, it's public. And that's the timing of determining when it can be public is after all um, contractual arbitration rights are settled. Um, because the mayor is supervising the police chief and the mayor has ultimate authority over discipline, fundamentally, any case before the civilian review could be talked about with the mayor. 
And I'll just tell you, there was one case I had, um, it, the incident actually happened, I don't know, maybe about 2000 or 2001. It was before I was on the Civilian Review Authority. But because of various backlogs, uh, it didn't get into the discipline consideration stream until about 2003. Uh, a, a chief... Bill McManus, who was brand new at the time, suddenly gets this file. It's something that really should have been prosecuted. Um, he's saying, why didn't it get prosecuted? And, and he called me, uh, he called a meeting that the mayor and myself, the head of the Civilian Review Authority and the police chief were there. Were, I can't remember if the union was there or not. I'm thinking they weren't. We're all discussing this case. So the mayor is clearly getting the details of this case. And the answer was very simple. Uh, it had been sent over to Internal Affairs for prosecution, consider for investigating to lead to prosecution, and they declined <laughs> before <laughs> Bill McManus was there. So once that happens, it's a personnel matter, not a criminal matter, and it was investigated as a personnel matter. Um, and what McManus did is he just simply didn't act on it. He refused to discipline it, and he refused to not discipline it. He, he didn't want the potential for it to be discovered through, you know, whatever lawsuit or private legal channels that he had failed to act. And he certainly didn't want the public disclosure, disclosure of this egregious incident that I'll just say had some aspects in common with the what people will know as the Abner Luima situation in Brooklyn, where someone um, where there was some form of sexual torture involved. Um, the, uh, he, he just sat on it because of the public data thing. Now, the mayor in that case, he had a huge political stake in having picked McManus. He had fired the incumbent police chief. He had not promoted an internal candidate who also would have at the time been the first woman police chief. He went outside and picked this mail from another place. And he had a lot at stake about that this was someone who the community should rally around and support. Um, he was not willing to out his own police chief for failing to discipline. But city council members maybe would have. <laughs> mm -hmm. If city council members had a right to know that that what kinds of situation, you know, if city council created a committee to determine, well, why is it that uh, an office we created by legislation is finding 60 incidents of misconduct a year. And I'm just making up that number. I really don't know what it is right now. But let's say it's 60 incidents of misconduct and the police chief disciplined five of them. Why is that? You know, and sets up some kind of review. They can go and look at private data because they are responsible for coming up with legislation to determine what else maybe needs to happen to enhance their own ordinance. So Michael, I wanna jump in on this. Isn't, isn't what we really need, we need to take the discretion out of this, you know, it, at least in terms of what becomes public. Right. And, and so, so the, because if, if you don't do that, even the most, at least on the face of it, noble police chief or mayor, people still act based on incentives, and 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 they're and and so unless you create a system, and I don't know if there's a way to 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 white out names and dates, but 
let me give you another example that Val and I've uh, asked about previously in this show, the fact that there were, George Floyd wasn't the first person to be choked on consciousness. He was the 41st, if I remember correctly. Right. Um, one of the, I think you know that I'm a part of the Committee on Government Information, and we have uh, obtained uh, the services of the ACLU to uh, sue the MPD over the, the coaching uh, issue. But one of the questions that we're asking that litigation is, was any discipline ever imposed against anyone for using the unconscious restraint that was used on George Floyd? If it was, it would be public. Right. Sorry, I said if it was if uh, if they were disciplined, it would be public information. Yeah, I, I I I mean it would be interesting question, and I wonder I don't know if it's part of their discovery or not. Excessive force public disciplines. I just wonder how many there even are over the last twenty years. I mean, <laughs> I, it, uh, the kinds of things that become public tend to be more administrative where there's there's well, we had one example. Chief Arredondo, Chief Arredondo, who in 20, uh, towards the end of my time on the city council, had, had sued the police department uh, over issues of racism in the department, yeah. and did it discipline someone for saying that there was racism in the Minneapolis Police Department. Right. That was public. Right. Well, he wanted that to be public for a reason, right? I mean, so... Um, yeah, I mean, I have, um, let's just say that, I mean, Chief Arredondo and I go back a long way, and I'm certainly friendly with him on a personal level and, and really, um, you know, like him as a person. Um, but I, I've said to him directly, I said, I, I, I basically let him know that I know what his incentive is. <laughs> his incentive is not to discipline. I've told him that, and you know, and, and appropriately, he neither confirmed nor denied. He just yeah. sort of, you know listen to what I, 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 I will say from my experience, every city department head is very well trained by the city attorney in how to avoid answering those kinds of questions or right. statements. Okay. Well, well, yeah. that, that would be, um, that would be the case, but the, the, the thing, you know, it's, it's an interesting question and I, I just want to, there, there's more I could say about this. And I think it's important because that's sort of the, the overall focus of your show is, is kind of data related stuff to my understanding. Um, I'm also, I'm currently right now on the lawyer's board, the lawyer's professional responsibility mm -hmm. board. So I've seen a different complaint system in operation, uh, which is not subject to the Data Practices Act. It's the judicial branch and they set their own. One of the most outrageous aspects of the Data Practices Act is the person who files a complaint also hears nothing. It's not just a matter of like what the Star Tribune gets or, you know, public radio. It's the person who files a complaint. So if somebody is done something that, uh, you know, let, let's say, um, you know, something has happened and uh, they filed a complaint. Let's take two examples. One where the police was misconduct, one where it wasn't misconduct. Okay, first example, it was misconduct. The police chief didn't discipline. The person who hears about it just hears nothing. They assume the oversight body's the problem. They don't necessarily know it's it's sort of at the level beyond. Uh, they assume no one's listening, you know, to them, and it creates the kind of outrage and furor that 
you know, can ignite on the right circumstances, such as we saw in the city of Minneapolis in 2020. It certainly wasn't a reaction to one single incident that led to that kind of reaction. Let me give you a second example. The officer had legal grounds to do it, or let's say they got a bad 911 tip or something happened where the officer, if they didn't do what they did, would have been negligent, but it was unfortunate if you just looked at it from the perspective of the person who experienced it. They don't hear anything. Mm-hmm. Would it be of value to them and the city of Minneapolis mm-hmm. if the police officer waived their rights of privacy and said, hey, I'd like to explain it to you so you're not mad at all police. I had that conversation with the police federation 15 years ago. I said, you know, why isn't it in your interest to promote more transparency? I mean, right now the field of policing is in crisis. They can't get enough applicants. The public reputation is sunk. Uh, The morale is terrible. Um, And they are making their own profession more difficult by holding on to their sort of outdated notions of tense and complete control over all data relative to their case. So the best way to make public discipline of officers less scary is to make everything transparent so that something is coached or something is reprimanded doesn't make that much difference with something was not done at all because all of it is just putting all of the, you know, it doesn't have to be like everything in the file. I understand sometimes there's private aspects or the person who filed the complaint, you know, shouldn't have everything revealed about them. But like what the lawyer's board does is it creates a summary, Mm -hmm. you know, and it could be just a one page summary. It goes back to the person who filed a complaint. We did not discipline the case because of such and such reasons. And then there's a right of appeal. You know, one of the real um, um, Orwellian things about Minneapolis um, law is that a person, and I, I actually, this was true when I was at the Civilian Review. I can't say 100% it hasn't changed, but a person would get a notice that their complaint against police was not disciplined. You have the right to appeal. And they were told why it wasn't disciplined. <laughs> so wow. yeah, everyone says, "Yeah, I'll appeal." What you know? What what's the harm? They don't know anything. Oh, yeah, yeah. What, there's all sorts of examples. But for example, you know, as a criminal prosecutor, if if I have a victim in a case, and I review the evidence, and I decide not to prosecute it, I have obligations under the Crime Victims Act to send a written dis- letter and explanation, have a personal meeting if it's requested as to why I declined that prosecution. So I can't imagine a system in which a prosecuting office would have, say, a a potential victim of a a, a criminal sexual conduct or a serious assault where we wouldn't wouldn't prosecute and we wouldn't even notify the victim. I mean, that's just insane. Or explain why. Or explain why, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's, it's a horrible thing. And it was hard for the several board members resign once they saw that it was happening. It was, it was um, hard for morale. But like a, one letter to the editor that actually didn't get published that I wrote, uh, I think a former police chief in, in um, uh, Bloomington, maybe, Potts, Chief Potts, he wrote a pretty, you know, earnest um, 
guest editorial in the Star Tribune about the difficulty in recruiting police, not just in Minneapolis, but really throughout the state and sort of looking for ways for there be, you know, a little bit better perceptions of policing. He didn't, he didn't get very concrete about what those ideas are. And I, I wrote a letter to the editor and because th the angle I took is that when I had the conversation with the police federation, and I should clarify that I never talked to Bob Kroll or John Delmonico, who was his Kroll's predecessor. All my conversations were with the union attorneys. That's just the nature of yeah. the work. Um, but when I talked to the federation attorneys, you know, and, and these were cooperative, good faith conversations overall, um, the response was, you know, if you made this public, who would want to be police? And so I would love to tell her now, 15 years later, well, no one wants to be police now because you don't have the transparency that makes people comfortable entering the profession, knowing that bad actors within the profession are being covered up for. Um, you know, but, that's so right because the the one of the things I've I, one of the things I've really pushed back on is there is a tendency among some, frankly, to not only put all police officers in the same category, but even all police departments in the same category. And, and, and I just, I, I reject that. And, but I do think that there's a toxic uh, consequence and it doesn't matter whether it's policing or a county attorney's office or a medical office or what it is, there's a, 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 a there's something toxic in a culture where bad behavior is not only not penalized, it's rewarded. And I was having a conversation with one of my colleagues about this. And I take great pride that I think the office I'm in, uh, it, it takes very seriously the rights of defendants, takes very seriously our Brady obligations to disclose evidence. But I was having a conversation with one of my newer attorneys. What if I was a Derek Chauvin type assistant county attorney? Right. And, I, and I had new young attorneys coming in. I said, you know, the defense doesn't really need to know about that. And, uh, you know, I didn't really like that guy. He wasn't very nice to me. Make sure he goes to prison. And, you know, it, that, that's the way things work. You know, you're young. Just, you'll, you'll figure it out. I mean, we're, 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 we're doing the right thing here. But it doesn't matter what the profession is. When bad behavior is, is rewarded, that's what happens. Right. And it, it creates a cancerous environment. And, and, you know, it's not stating anything anyone doesn't know, but that's when you see complaint history, such as with Chauvin, there's so clearly an air that anything goes. Or so can I ask you, and I know what your answer is going to be. I, I can't, don't even have to ask the question. I get, you're, you're not allowed, I assume, to tell me whether anything involving Derek Chauvin that that didn't be result in public discipline. You're not allowed to tell me that, I assume. Yeah, I, I think he was a relatively newer officer when I was there. I tried um, to see my notes. I was just curious if, if he was ever in front of my panel. Okay. And I did find he was in front of my panel once, but he wasn't the primary officer on the complaint. So it was, I think it was kind of relatively unscandalous. So what is your, do you have an opinion on this, uh, Michael and Val, you two? I, I, I can't for the life of me figure out why so few are asking this question. Uh, as I understand it, a couple years before George Floyd was murdered, 
Derek Chauvin assaulted a 14-year-old boy with a flashlight and held that 14-year-old boy on the ground using the same type of maneuver for, I think, almost twice as long as George Floyd while that individual begged, uh, you know, for, for his life. And yet there's no public discipline. How are we not, what is it about our politics or how we think about things that that isn't the outrage that people are talking about? Right. And because of private data, we don't know. I, I mean, I assume there was a complaint, hmm. uh, but I don't know that 100%. And I don't. Well, well, let me stop you. Should there have to be a complaint? I mean, if it's no, on video, no, why should there have to be a complaint? Well, someone has to bring it to the attention of the police chief. So the question. Well, how about the, but, but, who, but somebody had the video. Somebody well, that's right. Right. But the, but the point is that it was someone had the video on the body camera. And so it went into a, some, there was a, I believe that it was known because that 14 year old was arrested and there was a court case and the body camera was there. So then the question becomes, is it a duty on a prosecutor? Is it a duty on a defense attorney to raise a complaint about a police officer? You know, right now, um, right now it's in lawyer ethics that if you know of bad conduct that interferes with justice, you have a duty to report. Hmm. However, that applies only to other lawyers. Right. It doesn't apply to other players in the larger justice apparatus. And, you know, it's one of those division of powers questions that makes it complicated. I mean, I think, you know, being on, I can't speak for anyone but myself was as a single public member on the lawyer's board, but it would seem to me that the intent of that very same clause should extend to an obligation to report policing is, you know, other public officials. But I don't think I, I, I already have kind of begun to raise that internally. And I don't I think it would it's going to take a little bit of time because there's kind of a view that this is judicial branch inside stuff. And what happens in the executive branch is kind of its own its own other other category. But I do think you know, an, an elected county attorney, and we're going to have a county attorney election in Hennepin County anyway, I would hope the candidates serve, you know, asked very directly, you know, are you going to require your prosecutors to, um, when they see egregious police behavior, are you going to require that they report it and track what happens? I mean, they should, you know, not just say, okay, I handed it off and, you know, we get the same thing five years later where no discipline ever happens on anything. These are powerful people, prosecutors, and they can make it known that I'm not going to, I know in other cities, prosecutors have, have found certain officers who they just find disreputable and they have just told the police chief, I will not prosecute, I will not put this person on the witness stand. Well, one of the major issues that comes to mind is the requirements on prosecutors under the Brady decision that any type of exculpatory information, including information that would damage the credibility or reliability of a prosecution witness has to be turned over. Right. Uh, that's something that we always tell law enforcement, we can lose our license licenses over. Uh, I think police departments more and more are themselves being very strict about that too, to make sure 
but it seems to me that if we have, first of all, this gimmick of coaching being used, yeah. um, if, if we have serious misconduct by police that's not being disciplined, but that's in the possession of law enforcement. And if something's in the possession of law enforcement, we always say as prosecutors, we're responsible for it. So if there is egregious conduct by law enforcement that is not public record and we don't turn over, um, that is a serious problem in, in my view um, that we may be in, in Minneapolis anyway, if that's happening, that there's a violation of Brady as a result. Yeah, and, and I'll give you some, I mean, this is uh, hearsay from lawyers at the Legal Rights Center on a couple cases, but this is a pretty egregious example you may not be aware even happened somewhere else, which is that a prosecutor will say, you know, we, we have sort of a sense of officers on the scene and they will say there's no body camera footage. And the reason is that they will, let's say it's a witness police officer, they'll say we don't have any body camera footage from that officer for this incident. The reason is that on their computer, they classified that officer's footage for that day under a different case number so that when they cross-referenced it to the case at hand, they didn't have it. Now, you know, I don't know how far that that particular set of cases went to, you know, determine if that was intentional. I mean, it, that would be misconduct at the police level, not at the prosecution level. But it kind of gives that Brady out where, I mean, if the prosecutor says, well, I, what can I Tried do? everything for the case. And they say they have no body camera. You know, I, I, I saw that Mayor Fry was was calling one of his achievements that we have 95% compliance with the body camera policy. And I looked at that as, you mean we have 5% of cases in which body camera are somehow not being done? That's a lot of cases. That's right. Well, well, I, well, that's true of itself. But just so, it, so the nuance of what I said doesn't get missed, the case I, re, I re, report just talking about would, would have been in the 95%. It okay. was reported. It just was misclassified. Accidentally gets misfiled. Yeah. So it couldn't be associated back with the misconduct. Right. Oh, so Michael, I want to end with kind of maybe a broader philosophical point. Uh, you know, I, one of the things I think that we're guilty of in in Minnesota is is we want to believe a certain image of ourselves, and I think even in the wake of the George Floyd murder. I see us making some of the same mistakes all over again. Um, I see a lot of people that 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 want to just turn the page. I, I see a lot of people that are are just looking at um, really not wanting to face up in a real way, just the way the mayor and, and previous mayors and chiefs uh, have not wanted to face up to it, because we want to feel good about our city. Uh, you know, the, the, even the lawsuit that I've I've brought, you know, I've had people say, why would you be doing this? Why would you be trying to bring all these records into the public? You know, that's just going to move us back even further. Can't we just move on? Uh, but it does seem to me that if we don't have a reckoning about how we got here, and um, we don't address these types of questions we're discussing today, we're going to have another Derek Chauvin. And, and, and we're going to keep seeing this and, and we're going to keep reliving it. And, and so, 
that somehow we've got to translate this into action and and the charter alone isn't going to do it hopefully we can fix the way but then we've got to elect people that have the courage to actually open up really insist that these records become public and that we have the kind of conversations we should have been having for the last 30 years yeah um do you, do you want me to say anything about that or yeah that... as much as you like yeah. sure um yeah i mean i the metaphor I use, because it's sort of, um, you know, been kind of in our face the last two summers, is the fire conditions. If you look at what's out west, you know, it doesn't mean that there's, it, it means that we're in this constant state of danger because of climate change, because of the drought, because of dryness, all sorts of factors are there. So it doesn't mean that there's a fire at all times, but there are fire conditions at all times. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot for many years, people with institutional power or even, you know, and sometimes, you know, at the level of public employee unions who, you know, when there's reform that they don't want, just kind of have the view, okay, the heat's on, this will pass. And I think that's what people are hopeful for. We've already seen there's certainly backlash in the way that they're responding in a big way to this. To this. But if people are telling you it in the framework of, you know, the sort of a positive view of our city, it's okay, well, then why is everyone so afraid of transparency and the truth? Mm -hmm. exactly the transparency and the truth and we have a great city then we've earned it if not that that's ideal it. like that's what we should all want right so yes on charter change one yes on charter change two but more important than any of that yes on candidates that will right demand transparency uh demand accountability uh and and really hold the feet to the fire uh on these issues i, I just want to take one second just to tie it to, to the defunding piece a bit because if you had transparency and everyone knew that officers who were problem were being removed you'd have very good arguments for having a larger police force mm -hmm. because you know look at right now you know, I bet that, um, you know, not to pick on, uh, let's say, I'll, I'll, I don't want to pick on holiday. Let's say we had a lot of 7-Elevens here. <laughs> if they have problem employees, they may not be firing them right now. If, right. School, if school schools have problem bus drivers, they're probably not firing them right now because the employee pool is so low, they kind of have to go. So the Minneapolis Police Department, which is at a kind of a lower point of staffing, it's kind of a, ironically, it's sort of a harder time for them to be more accountable because they're worried about who, where the replacements are coming from. So, um, but the problem is that argument doesn't sell well to people who, you know, have found, you know, police misconduct to be so abusive over so many years. And they rather defund because they're saying, well, if you can't get rid of them, we're going to get rid of them by like trying to lower the overall numbers. Not that that position is necessarily, you know, the majority or, or going to prevail, but that is where that sentiment comes from. We're defunding 
because you can't get rid of problems. So we're going to lower your numbers and then meanwhile, build up all these other things. If you had good transparency and good accountability, the everyone who's worried about how many police we could have could easily revisit that question because a police chief could say, look, I've got 10 people I need to fire. I need to have, you know, I need to have a police force of 900 so that any one time I can fire 50, <laughs> you know, but that argument yeah. is not available right now. I tend to, to look at wanting to fix the issues we've been talking about. Let's get rid of the officers that we should get rid of. Let's discipline them. You know, the, the, the problem with holding the police department accountable, uh, we may want to do that in a certain gut sense, but it's the people that are being victimized by crime and don't have the law enforcement they need that ultimately pay the price. So it's it's not really the police department that that pays the price. Uh, but I just hope that that these kinds of conversations can continue. And and Michael, I just so appreciate your your insight, all the service that you've given to the the city, and and the perspective you have is so very. Uh, very valuable. Thank you so much. Well, I'm really glad I read your article connected to you, and I'm looking forward to going to the party to celebrate the passage of both charter amendments. That would maybe you and I will have to organize that. We'll see if we can start a movement. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Thank Thank you. You. I'm all so about much. bringing peace and, and common common ground. So I think the more we can do that, the better. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much, Mike. Have a good night. Okay. Thank you.